I had a really, really great dad moment yesterday, uh, a really proud dad moment. I got to watch Rocky II with my boys, all right? I watched the first Rocky with them a couple weeks ago. The first Rocky movie is a little slow, all right? So it's, it's kind of like, it's slow, but so I, fa- I actually fast forwarded a few parts. Um, and then we got to Rocky too, and man, I was just, it was like an awesome dad moment because I look over on the couch and like, and they're fighting and, you know, Apollo Creed and Rocky Balboa, and I look at my boys and they're just, they're just on the edge of their seats, and I'm like, oh man, I love this moment. And then we finished Rocky too, and they were like, dad, that was such a good movie. And I was like, guess what's next? Rocky three. <laughs> and they were like, oh yeah, Rocky three. And I was like, guess who Rocky Balboa fights in Rocky III? And my son William was like, Isis? <laughs> I was no, not Isis. That's ridiculous. Um, and then they get to watch Rocky IV, right? Which is one of my, which is like, I think it's my favorite Rocky movie. Um, I was born uh, in 1980, and so I was raised in the 80s and the 90s. And for those of you that were, you know, uh, around during that time, there was this weird thing that was going on where all the bad guys in the movies were Russians, okay? And it's still a little bit that way today. Ru- bad guy Russians are making a, making a return into our cinemas, into our shows recently. Um, it's funny how, like, with things that are happening in the world, it kind of translates into our TV shows and our movies. But in the 80s, you know, it was a big deal. I remember uh, being in school, and they had these drills where, they had, where we had to get under our tables in case the Russians like, were to, like, Red Dawn style, like, attack us, you know, or, like, shoot a, a bomb at us, you know. So we used to do that. Um, but but uh, it's funny because I sort of unfortunately picked up, like, a really um, a, a mistrust of Russians, you know, during those, during those times, during those years, right? I was just like indoctrinated into it. I had these stereotypes about Russian people. The cool thing is that later on in college, I got to go to Russia on a trip. And I'm so glad for that because it, it was such an awesome experience. I mean, just some amazing people and they were just so kind. Um, you know, so obviously like kind of fixed my view, my, my unfortunate view of like, you know, the, the evil Russians that are out there to get us. Um, I think a lot of people, and we've been talking about this for a couple, for a couple weeks, a lot of people ha- have this stereotype of church and what church is all about. A lot of people have a stereotype of what Christianity is all about. And they might have gotten it from their, their family growing up, um, might have been their parents' view, maybe their parents really got wounded or hurt and so they kind of rubbed off on the kids. Or maybe, or maybe just, you know, you studied some history, you've looked at some, you took a history class and you've looked at some things in the past and you're like, whoa, there's some, been some things. Maybe you've, maybe you've looked at the news even too and you've, you've seen some horrendous things that it seems like the church of Jesus has done or is doing and that's really caused some deep skepticism in you. Or maybe you personally, you had a re, uh, an experience at church that was, that was, uh, that was hard, that was, that was um, damaging to you. That, that was wounding to you. And so therefore, you know, you've maybe, maybe you have this view, this deep skepticism of the church. Um, uh, I don't know what your story is, but over these last few weeks, we've been kind of just trying to take a big picture, a step back view of what is the church of Jesus Christ supposed to be about? What, what have we, you know, let's be honest about what we've gotten wrong, but let's look at big picture what it looks like to be the church of Jesus. Uh, the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians, he says that the church is supposed to be the aroma of Christ. It's a really cool word. You, you haven't used the word aroma in a while, so I suggest you work it into a conversation this week. 
the, that we're, the church is supposed to be the aroma of Christ. That it's, it's supposed to literally be like wafting around. Just as the, wherever the church goes, wherever we are as the church, it's just we're supposed to have the aroma of Christ. And it's supposed to be a good thing. Unfortunately, we look at what a lot of people view the church as nowadays. And I don't know exactly what people are smelling, but they're smelling a few things. I think what some people are smelling is people are smelling irrelevance. They just kind of like look at the church of Jesus and they're like, man, I don't know. It's kind of like how you and I look at an Elks Lodge, you know? Every time I drive by an Elks Lodge, I don't have negative feelings about it. I don't, I just like, I don't even know what it is. I don't even know what they do. I'm like, I I don't know. And I don't really care, you know? I mean, I kind of have that attitude towards an Elks Lodge. And I think a lot of people have that attitude towards towards the church. I don't know. I mean, they're just kind of doing their thing. Um, Another thing that people are smelling is perhaps just that we're just full of judgment. That that's what we're about. We're just, we're just constantly trying to point out what's wrong. You know what a lot of people smell too when they're kind of like look at the church is they smell um, that, that there, maybe there's, there's, some, it's, there's danger. Like, hey, if those people really sort of like took the Bible seriously and did all that stuff, then it's going to just, it's going to go really bad. And that's why we have shows like Handmaid's Tale, you know, where it's like this future dystopian world where like if the people are like really taking the Bible seriously and if they were to do that, it would create this whole society that would be so ugly. And so, you know, the attitude of sorts, some people towards the church is like, hey, you know, it's fine if you guys do churchy stuff, but can you guys just kind of tone it down a little bit? No, don't take it, don't take it too seriously, you know, just like let it be like a fun social club, but don't like, don't like let it get into your life. And uh, what we've been talking about is that that's actually not the answer. The answer isn't to tone it down. The answer actually is to ramp it up. Because when we take the message of Jesus Christ seriously, it literally will create, as the Apostle Paul said in one of the letters, or sorry, as, as, yeah, as, as Paul said in Ephesians 2, he says that if we're taking Jesus Christ seriously. Is that if at the core of my faith is this God who came and died for me on the cross, rose again, who healed lepers and, and, and cared for the sick, that if that's at the core of my faith, then actually that's going to create, as the Apostle Paul says, a new kind of humanity. It's pretty wild that Paul would say that. Because normally we don't think of a new kind of humanity when we think of the church, right? When we think of church often or when, other, when your friends think of church, what do we think of? We think here's the door and here's the steeple, right? Open the door and there they are, right? That's the church. But Paul's like, man, no, 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 no. Church isn't a place. Church isn't a day. No, it's, it's a new way of being human. Whoa, what does that mean? And so, you know, listen, if you're jumping in today, listen, we've, we've talked about some things in these past weeks and I can't even, can't even begin to like go over all of them. So all of that's online. You can just go and listen and get all caught up, caught up with us. But I want to take the ball down the field just a little bit more today because um, what the church of Jesus Christ gets to be, the way that we get to be the aroma of Christ is we're literally a new, a new creation and we're a new humanity. And what we're literally doing is we're, we're, you know, contrary to what a lot of people think, we're not going out into the world just trying to be moral. We're not going out into the world just trying to be good so that God will love us better or most. We're not going out into the world just so we can like feel better than anybody else or look down our nose at anybody else. That's not what we're doing at all. But what we're literally doing is we're reciprocating the love of Jesus that's been poured out to us. That if when we see Jesus doing what he's done for us, we are changed people. We can't help but just go out into the world and just live radical new lives. That's what we're doing. And that's what the church of Jesus has done. 
over the centuries. Um, and what this does is it kind of puts us in this world where we are living in a kingdom ruled by Jesus Christ, that he's our Lord and kingdom. That's our primary kingdom. But yet we're also living in our surrounding culture and our surrounding world that has different values, that has different ways of understanding the world. And how do we live in this tension where we live in both? This is a difficult tension that Christians have had to walk through and, and work out their faith in is how do we live in God's kingdom putting him first, but also living in the kingdom around us. Um, it's challenging. Um, but my question is, what would it look like? What would it look like for Christians to live in such a compelling way that even people who aren't sure what we believe or not sure about the, our doctrine or that they would look at our lives and they would see the, the and, the, and they would look at these lives that we're, leave, that we're living and they would say, man, I don't know about what they believe quite yet, but, but man, that is compelling. That is interesting. What would it look like for us to live that way? So I got to pick up where we left off because I kind of left on a cliffhanger last week. And the reason is because I, I honestly just ran out of time. All right. I was trying to be respectful of time. I had a bunch more points and I was like, ah, you know what? We're going to just going to leave it for next week. Um, but what we did last week was we read from, uh, from the book of 1 Peter. And Peter, the apostle Peter, is uh, Jesus at this point has, he's, He's, he's died on the cross. He rose again. He's, he's ascended. He's left the church. And he says, listen, I'm, gonna, I'm giving you the same job that I came here to do. I want you to continue. And so now Christianity is spreading. And, and these apostles, these eyewitnesses are traveling. And people are becoming Christians. And the, the, the great news is that Jesus isn't dead. He rose from the dead. And all sorts of things happen. I got a map for you just so you can see the context of what's going on in 1 Peter. But in 1 Peter, um, Peter is in Rome. He's in Rome at, at this point. He's probably in some sort of, a, he might be um, in some sort of captivity. We're not really exactly quite sure. But he's in Rome and he's writing to a bunch of churches over here. It says Asia, but this is modern day Turkey over here. So see all these, you know, Ephesus and, you know, and all these Tarsus and Troas and all these different cities over there. There's all these Christian churches over there. And Peter is writing them in the context of deep, deep persecution. That Christians at this point are, are being pushed to the margins. Christians have absolutely no clout, no power. Christians are, are, there's all these sorts of rumors about them. And they're getting tossed into the arena to get, you know, torn apart by animals. I mean, it was just, you know, we've got, we know that there are some Roman emperors that just, just hated Christians so much that they, every time they caught them meeting or gathering, they, you know, grab them and, and burn them at the stake. It was just a horrendous time is the point. And Paul is just writing, I mean, sorry, Peter, pardon me, is writing in the context of all this. And he's writing these letters. He's trying to write encouraging things. And here's what he says. Listen, what we read last week is so fascinating. He says, but you, but you, this is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's talking about identity here. He's just identity. Listen, this is who you are. Because Jesus has done what he's done, this is who we get to be. And then, remember, this is like that Starbucks moment where like the pumpkin spice latte comes over. Peter's sitting across the table with you. And Peter, I think, would just, would just you know, say, hey, because of your new identity in Christ, listen, I'm, I urge you. 
Just imagine just sitting with Peter and he's just talking with you and he's just telling you about who you are in Christ and then he just wants to say, okay, if all that's true, then listen, I urge you. And listen to what Peter's about to say. He, he says something really profound. He says, so here's what it means then, if that's your identity, is Christians are going to have to do some things, some courageous things. On one hand, Christians are called to not do some things that the rest of the world does. And Christians are called to do some things that the rest of the world isn't doing. You get that? Paul says, listen, there's, I'm sorry, Peter, pardon me. <laughs> Peter says, there's going to be some things that you, I, you, we as Christians don't do that the rest of the world does. And it's going to be hard to not do those things because the rest of the world is doing them. And we get it. We want to fit in. And, you know, we don't want to be the outliers. But there's some things that we're not going to do. But then there's going to be some things that we do. And he says this. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. There's so much good stuff in here. And again, I can't re-preach what I preached last week, but last week we talked about how aliens and strangers and we're pilgrims and what that means and how we abstain from these sinful desires and why do we do that? And then it says, live such good lives among the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, and we talked about last week how even if you do just, even if you do live a compelling Christian life, that there's just going to be some people that don't understand and they're going to accuse us of, of things. Um, and we just have to be prepared for that. We just have to be ready for that and not let the fear of man have a, such a hold in our lives that it, it, that it, that it preempts us from, from having the fear of God in our lives. We talked about all that, but then we said, we said, what are these things that Christians have done throughout the centuries where they've lived such good, compelling lives that, that people, that the, you know, this says that the, the pagans or just like the non-Christians, that they look at these Christians and they say, man, I don't, I don't, what is that? I've never seen anything like that before that is so compelling. And Christians have done, done some things over the centuries um, historically that have, that have done that in our world. And so last week we covered two. I said, we said last week that the first one was impartial, no strings attached, compassion. Christians have been known for their compassion. Where did hospitals come from? Christians. Christians started hospitals. Wait a minute, weren't there hospitals before? Yeah, there's always been like hospitals for like armies or hospitals for rich people. Like if you were rich and you could afford a doctor, you know, to swing by your house, uh, you know, you, you, you had those things available to you. But a place where you could go if you had no money, a place you could go if you were just on the fringe of society, a place you could go if you, if you had a past, a place you could go and, and, and just receive care, because Christians have Jesus at the center of their lives, Christians says, yes, this is what we're going to do. And Christians have demonstrated incredible compassion over the centuries. Uh, number two is we said joyfully and skillfully contributing to culture. So we said that Christians contributed to science, literature, architecture, education, music, art, anything and everything. And the big point was that Christians have contributed to culture with such beautiful creativity in such compelling ways that people have said, man, I don't know about what you believe, but Dang, that's good. That's just, that's so good. Christians have done that. Okay, here we go. Ready? This is where I left off. We're all caught up. Here's the next thing that Christians have done. Uh, number three is they've spoken truth to power. They've spoken truth to power. Um, the, really, the world has always sort of been a place where might makes right. 
It's kind of like any culture, anywhere you go, any time in history, there's just been this attitude of might makes right. And Christians have functioned throughout the centuries as a, as a conscience to the surrounding culture. Because Christians find themselves in this unique place where even though they're a part of like an earthly kingdom, they're, they're firstly a part of God's kingdom. And so therefore, their citizenship in, in this kingdom over here, this earthly kingdom, it's, it's a legit citizenship. In other places in scripture, we're called to, to, just, to be great citizens. But also because our first allegiance is to this kingdom and not to this kingdom, it gives us this place and culture where we get to speak truth to power structures It's not always going to be popular. It's not always going to be something that wins us, you know, a lot of points. But we have a unique place in society to be able to do that. And we see this all throughout the Bible. You know, there's this wacky, crazy group of people in the Old Testament. They're called prophets. And the prophets were just sent into these situations, mostly into Israel. Um, you know, there's one prophet, Jonah, where Jonah's member, he's supposed to go to, uh, go to Nineveh and he doesn't want to go. And, and, you know, but uh, these prophets largely would come to their own people and say, listen, you, you've, you've missed the mark. Come home, come back, turn away. And listen, the prophets are, are, have always been marginalized. <laughs> Nobody knew what to do with those prophets. They're like, man, you guys are weird sometimes, you know. And, uh, and even sometimes we don't read those passages in the Old Testament or those, cha- those books just because they're dense and long and thick. And you're like, oh, I don't know what to do with the book of Jeremiah sometimes, you know, because there's some imagery in there. And I mean, it's, but it's all, uh, but then there's some prophets that we can more relate to that's that where we get it. Like one that I think of in particular is Nathan. Nathan was, was the prophet underneath David's reign. And you remember the moment in, in David's life where David has, he, he hasn't gone out to war. He's got caught up with Bathsheba. He's, he's plotted to murder Bathsheba's husband. I mean, Dave, I mean, David's done some real shady stuff, like Jerry Springer shady, like stuff. And, and, he, and, he's, and, guy, and he's the most powerful guy in the kingdom. I mean, he's, he's powerful. And he it, thinks that he can cover it up. But Nathan knows, well, God knows. And God says, Nathan, I want you to go talk to David. And can you imagine that moment where Nathan goes into the most powerful man, like the most powerful man around, and he says, you know, hey, I know what you've done. I know what you've done. I see it. I mean, David could have squashed him and could have crushed him. I mean, just imagine the kind of guts it takes to walk into a position of power like that and just call something out and speak truth. Um, but that's what, how Christians have, have operated. So Christians have done this in all sorts of different ways. One of the ways they did that in those early centuries was they outlawed the gladiatorial games. The gladiatorial games were brutal, ugly. They were, just imagine the NFL, all right? Just imagine an NFL game where the goal is for one team to just murder everyone else on the other team. All right, in the most bloody of ways. And the team that murders more people wins the match. And everybody's in the, in the stands, you know, drinking beer and eating Cheetos and cheering and laughing and screaming and crying out for more blood. I mean, that's what the gladiatorial games were. And the Christians, and, and it was a part of the power structure there too. And over the centuries, Christians said, no, 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 no. We're not going to do this anymore. Christians did all sorts of things. Christians uh, in those first centuries brought in wide-sweeping prison reform. Because prisoners in those days were, you know, if you were, 
If you were a thief, you were, you were either put in prison for life and those prisons were, were you know, human rights was not a, was not a thing on the radar for in, those, in those prisons. But also prisoners would be branded either on their face or on their hands so that the world would know that even if they get out of prison, don't hire this person. Don't befriend this person. Don't serve this person a meal. Don't let this person in your home. And so prisoners were just branded for life at a very difficult time after that. And Christians came in and they said, because Jesus is at the center of our faith, because we know that every person is created in the image of God, Christians said, no, even prisoners deserve dignity. We're not going to do that anymore. All sorts of changes. Christians uh, heightened the status of women and children. Several weeks ago, we talked about one of my favorite guys in church history just from this last century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in the middle of Nazi Germany. What's he supposed to do? And so Bonhoeffer boldly, among many other Christians, they were, it was called the confessing, the confessing church. And it's because they were confessing boldly that Jesus Christ is Lord of the church, not Hitler. Hitler, you are not the boss of me. <laughs> is what they proclaimed, and it, got them, and it got them killed. Martin Luther King Jr. is another, is another figure. You know, we can even think of the original Martin, Martin Luther, who, you know, it's just speaking truth to power in the middle of the, refer, in the, the, the Protestant Reformation. But then Martin Luther, there's this, this looking at Scripture and seeing how people have, uh, throughout, throughout Scripture, have gone through nonviolent protests, speaking truth to power structures, but not using guns, but just boldly standing in the middle of the street and saying, no, no, no. Christians have done this. It's been their role. And the reason why Christians can do this is because they've just recognized that we're a part of a new kingdom primarily. And my citizenship in this earthly kingdom comes second. That's really key, guys. It's really key because we get into a lot of danger if we glob on too closely to a political party if we glob on too closely to any, any, any political leader, any leader at all, if we, just, if we sort of get so ingrained into our culture, do you see what happens? We, get, we, get, we, we jump on the bandwagon so heavily that now we lose the forest for the trees and now we lose the power to be able to speak prophetically into that system because we're so ingrained in the system we can't see it anymore. And so Christians have just been called to humbly just live in this world, to be a part of things, to be great citizens. And yet at the same time, we have the ability to have a step back and be able to speak truth to power. The prophet Nathan did it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did it with Nebuchadnezzar. They got thrown into the fire. John the Baptist did it. It cost him his head. Jesus did it, and it took him to the cross. Here's number four is uh, not only did they speak truth to power, but number four is they were known for more gratefulness and less complaining and entitlement. I've got a great verse here from, from, again, the apostle Paul is writing to this church in Philippi. In Philippians 2, it says this. It says, do everything. And by the way, the, the word everything in the Greek, it means everything. Okay? <laughs> do everything without complaining and arguing. One, what your translation might say, without complaining or grumbling. So that you may be blameless and innocent, God's children without any faults, among a crooked and perverse generation, listen, among whom you shine like stars in the world as you hold firmly to the word of life. You know, when you meet someone that doesn't complain, um, 
it's like a really special thing. It's like an angel gets its wings, you know? Like when you, when you meet somebody and they're just like, because there's so much complaining, grumbling, and entitlement that goes around in our world so much. And when you meet someone that's just got this humble attitude of gratitude and just generosity and they're just not complaining about all sorts of things, you just, you, when you find that person, you're like, who are you? Where are you from? And how do you reproduce yourself? Like, how do we get more of you in this world? Because you know what one of my favorite things that my kids do in my house? You know what my favorite thing? My favorite thing is when they whine. That's my absolute favorite thing, when they whine. Um, it just brings so much joy to my heart when my kids are just whining all the time, right? Isn't like whining actually the worst thing ever? I mean, it's just so tough to deal with. And you're just like, oh, quit whining. You know, stop whining. But yet sometimes we just, we, you know, we go out into our world and listen, if you're, if, uh, you know, if you're looking for a job out there, by the way, if you're kind of in a job search, listen, speaking as a boss, so I've got some, I've, I'm a boss, I, I, I hire people, I've got some people under me, and uh, listen, what I'm looking, one of the main things I'm looking for, sure, I've got your resume, sure, I've got your experience, all that stuff is so good, but do you know, like, do you know one of the things I'm looking for mostly? It's just somebody that's just not a whiner. I'm just looking for somebody that's just got gratitude and I'm just gratefulness. I mean, it goes so well. In fact, when you've got somebody, you know, a lot of you are bosses out here. You've got some people that work under you that you're responsible for. When you've got somebody sort of like under you and they're, and they're just filled with generosity and they just have a great attitude and they're not whining and complaining all the time, you can't like do enough for them, huh? I mean, you just want to, like, give them the world. You want, to, you want to promote them. You want to give them more opportunities. But you've got some people under you that are just constantly whining, and you're just like, Ugh, come on. And listen to what, listen to what Paul says here in, to, to the church in, in uh, Philippi. He says, man, do everything without complaining or arguing. And if you do this, listen, he says, that you will shine like stars. Listen, you have... No idea the kind of favor that will come into your life. If you just let so that like sort of like whining, entitlement, complaining thing that tends to be in all of us, if you just let gratitude just replace it and push those things out, you're just like walking around just thankful. You will be so, you'll be blown away by the favor that comes into your life and the favor, and the favor that comes out of your life. Christians have been known through the centuries of just having this this attitude of gratefulness instead of complaining and entitlement. Um, number five, one of the other things Christians have been known for is how they handle pain, suffering, and disappointments with honesty, dignity, and hope. That's how Christians have responded historically through the centuries to pain, suffering, disappointments. Listen to what Peter says in just the chapter before that we just read. Um, here's First Peter in chapter 1. He says this. He says, in all this, remember, he's writing to people who are in deep persecution. He's writing to people who they got to keep their Christianity silent. Otherwise, they're going to get tossed into an arena. They're going to get burned at the stake. And he says, in all this, you greatly rejoice. What? Though now for a little while, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What's the Christian response to trials and suffering? Peter says it's joy. Joy. Now, that seems like on the surface... On the surface, that seems really unhealthy. It seems a little bit um, like, like, it, like, is he saying that when suffering and trials and things come, that we're just supposed to like, the Christian attitude is just, yeah, just, just turn that frown upside down. You know, like, hey, no, don't worry. Like, no, cancer, it's good. Just pretend like cancer's good and then like everything will be fine. Just keep a smile on your face, you know. Is that what Paul's talking about? No, no, Paul's not talking about that. It says that when we encounter pain, trials, disappointment, that the Christian, we get to be honest about those things. This hurts. This is hard. As Christians, we are not called to just put a veneer, you know, like this happy, clappy Christian veneer over things that are painful or things that, are, things that hurt. No. It's, we say, yes, this is hard. But here's, what the Christian, here's how the Christian gets to respond in a different way than the rest of the world does. The Christian gets to respond with a deep, deep joy because, because when your identity is rooted in something not on the, in this life, but when your identity is rooted in the love of a God who, whose love is, is for you and with you, no matter what happens in your life, no matter what happens on this planet, that the, only, the one thing that's sure is that his love will endure, even when everything on this world is just up and down and up and down and things are really hard and things get really good. But when your identity is rooted in the love of the Father that never changes, you now have a hope that suffering cannot take away. You now have a joy that death can't even steal from you. And this becomes the new heartbeat for the life of a Christian. That I can look at pain and suffering and it hurts and it's hard and I'm disappointed. But yet my joy and my hope is intact. Because even though death might come to my body, death can't touch my hope. Even though cancer can touch my body, cancer can't touch my hope. My hope is secure. This is, what, this is what Paul's talking about, or Peter's talking about. Your hope is secure. Your salvation is secure. So therefore, the Christian now gets to live their life with this deep sense of purpose and hope. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful thing. And this has been one of the things that has caused non-Christians, people that are unsure about the church, to watch how Christians deal with suffering and pain and trials and disappointments. And this has been one of the main things that's caused people to say, what is this? How can you respond to this situation like this? Remember, Peter's in prison, and what are they doing? They're singing. And the guards are like, what are you guys doing? Why are you singing? It's because at the core of our faith, we have this God who hung on a cross and looked at the people down below and said, Father, forgive them. I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to lightning bolt them. I'm going to do what I came here to do. And I'm going to entrust judgment to him who judges justly. Because the Christians have, a, have a, that at the core of our faith, and we can be an example to the world of how to handle disappointments and pain. You know, we have, uh, I've got, I've 
I'm not going to get to them all, but I have so many stories here of so many times when Christians have been walked up the gallows to get hung or get tied to a stake for standing up to power. And everything that the world tries to throw at them is trying to get them to recant and say, no, Jesus isn't Lord. No, like I was wrong the whole time. But Christians have done this crazy thing throughout the centuries where they're so convinced that their salvation is secure and so convinced that Jesus rose from the dead that they didn't recant. And we've got stories. We've got stories of, of, of people watching executions of Christians and becoming Christians in those moments. One story in particular, these Christians in the third century, uh, they were going to be killed. Do you know how they were going to be killed? They were going to be left out into the frigid, in the frigid snow just to die of exposure. And there was a bunch of soldiers around just watching them, all in their comfy outfits, watching these Christians just in their underwear about to die. And these soldiers looked and they just saw how these Christians handled that. I can't even imagine. But we know one story of this one, this one uh, centurion who saw that the way that the Christians were handling that situation and he was so moved that he took off his cloak, he took off his armor, he got down to his underwear and he joined the Christians to die in that very moment. That this has happened all throughout history because Christians have faced these things with deep, deep hope and deep, deep purpose. Um, and it's like C.S. Lewis said that the way that we respond to pain is one, is one of God's megaphones to rouse a deaf world. Um, last one, number six. The way that, one final way that Christians have responded to, 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 to life in a way that was compelling was, number six, they were reassuringly similar but surprisingly different. Reassuringly similar but surprisingly different. Different. This is the Christian evangelistic strategy. This is Westside's evangelistic strategy. How do we help people know who Jesus is? Well, first, we, we got to be like others enough. We got to be reassuringly similar so that they'll get in close. Because if we're just like, you know, if, if they don't want to get in close, then we're not going to be able to show them how beautiful Jesus is. And so we want to be reassuringly similar to the surrounding culture around us. And yet at the same time, when people come in close and they just see our community, they see the way that we follow Jesus, it is surprisingly different. Whoa. So um, about once a year, once a year, I read this letter. And I read it because it's my favorite letter that we have from the second century. I think it's from 160 AD. It's a letter that we have between two people who are trying to understand these Christians. Remember, it's the second century. And these Christians are like, who are these people? And how do they live? And how do we get rid of them? <laughs> and what are we, like, how do we, what's the deal with these Christians? And we have this letter of these two people who are writing each other saying, man, here's what these Christians are like. And it gives us this beautiful glimpse into the life of these early Christians, I want to read it to you because I get inspired every time I read it. Here's what it says. It's called the letter to Diognetus. It's from 140 AD. It says, this is a guy's observations. He says, for Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language or customs. They do not live in cities of their own. They do not use a particular form of speech. They do not follow an, an eccentric manner of life. This doctrine of theirs has not been discovered by the ingenuity or deep thought of inquisitive men, nor do they put forward a merely human teaching, as some people do. 
Yet, although they live in Greek and barbarian cities alike, as each man's lot has been cast, and they follow the customs of the country in clothing and food and other matters of daily living, at the same time, they give proof of the remarkable and admittedly extraordinary constitution of their own commonwealth. They live in their own countries, but, as, but only as aliens. They have a share in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet... For them, every fatherland is a foreign land. They marry like everyone else, and they beget children, but they do not cast out their offspring. They share their board with each other, but not their marriage bed. It is true that they are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives, they go far beyond what the laws require. They love all men and by all men are persecuted. They are unknown and still they're condemned. They are put to death and yet they are brought to life. They are poor and yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute and yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are dishonored and in their very dishonor are glorified. They are defamed and they're vindicated. They're reviled and yet they bless. They are affronted and when they are affronted, they still, they still pay due respect. And when they do good, they are punished as evildoers, undergoing punishment. They rejoice because they are brought to life. They are treated by the Jews as foreigners and enemies, and they're hunted down by the Greeks. And all the time, those who hate them find it impossible to justify their enmity. Love that. Just this picture of the early church just being surprisingly similar, or reassuringly similar, but surprisingly different. Um, I pray, I just pray that we are a church that's known for these things, right? I pray that we're known for these things. That when people come in and just see our community, they're gonna see messiness, they're gonna see brokenness. We don't have to hide those things. We're human beings. We need Jesus just as much as anybody else. We need him to come in and transform. But I hope that people can come in and they see us and they just see, they see just the kind of weirdos that you guys are. You guys are so weird. Like I pray that people come in and they see how you forgive one another. That they just see radical forgiveness in our midst. That, when we're, that we're not easily offended. That, and when we do offend each other, we just forgive. We seek out. We don't gossip about it to three people before we talk to the source. We just go to the source. Guys, what you guys do is crazy. Do you know that so many of you give like 10% of what you make back to the church or to other organizations that you believe in? So many of you do that. 10% of what you make or more. Some of you, it's more. Guys, that's crazy. That's crazy. Nobody would believe that you do that. And if you told them, they'd be like, what are you thinking? Do you know what you could do with all that money? All those people going to Mexico, there's 900 bucks. You know what you could do with 900 bucks? It's crazy, you could do so many things. No, 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 but we follow Jesus and so I'm gonna use my money to serve. That's why he gave it to me. I'm just a steward. Let's pray that he would just see that kind of craziness in our midst, that people would see that and they would say, wow, I don't know if I believe what they believe yet, but dang, that's good. That is good. That's beautiful. Let's be the church of Jesus in that way.